I'm film critic Gary Cogill, and after reviewing more than 10,000 films and interviewing just about every actor on the planet, one of my favorite things to do is to share a glass of wine with my wife and talk movies on a deeper, richer level. And I'm wine writer, speaker, and consultant Haley Hamilton Cogill. I'm a sommelier, a certified specialist of wine, founder of Dallas Uncorked, and write a blog called Red Wine with Breakfast. I love to talk movies with my husband, and I get to travel the world chasing the grape. So between wine and film, we are A a Perfect perfect pairing. Pairing. Welcome, everyone, to Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. Now, today, a lot about ourselves, about how we think about film and how we think about wine and really how it all works together for the two of us. And I have to admit, Haley, I'm looking at you right now. I think you know more about wine than just about anyone I've ever met in my life, and you make it all accessible. You make it understandable. Well, thank you, Gary. And in the same way regarding you in film, after 26, 27 years now, you you know every single bit of trivia that anyone can ever throw at you, (laughs) which makes you really fun um, in many of our discussions. Um, But I do love wine, and I love to talk about it. And I'm always in search of that perfect glass and and the ever-changing landscape of wine makes it so much fun. But I think what I wanted to start, start talking about was more regions and, and wines in particular that kind of shaped me to to become the wine lover I am and, and leave corporate America to to follow my passions. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with a region that you and I both love because it's your hometown. Yeah, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I'm really a child of the 50s and the 60s. I've seen every bad monster movie ever made. It, Them, The Thing That Couldn't Die, Hypnotic Eye, The Crawling Eye. Yeah, anything that you could mutate with radiation. I was there as a child, and I'm, there were triple features and double features. And I, mean, I remember seeing a movie. Uh, I live in te- we we live in Texas now, but I remember seeing a movie called The Blob in Portland, Oregon, and that's Steve McQueen, the great Steve McQueen, starring in a monster film. And of course, the Blob comes in and blobs the whole town, and they fly the Blob away, and they made a sequel. And there's another film as a kid called The Killer Shrews, which I think ended up being shot on Lake Dallas. But they use Lake Dallas as the Atlantic Ocean, and the killer shrews are giant rats mutated, thank you, by radiation. And at some point, you look close in that just awful movie that's dogs in zipper suits rawr, rawr, trying to get after you. But the killer shrews uh, was shot on Lake Dallas. They used Lake Dallas as the Atlantic Ocean. And at one point in that movie, you can look across the Atlantic Ocean and you can see the tree line of Europe. So it's monster <laughs> movies. And then I remember seeing the Alamo with my dad. My dad walked out of the movie. I'm crying. Everybody's dead. Boy's dead, uh, Davy Crockett's dead, and girls on the horse with a child, the only survivors. And I looked at my dad, and he looks at me and says, their uniforms didn't get dirty. And I went, Dad, Dad, you missed everything. I, my first musical was West Side Story. But I had this infatuation with movies as a little child growing up in Oregon. It was a really big deal. And, and those movie theaters still mean a lot to me. Half of them aren't there anymore. But 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 it's a childhood thing. And so at the time, I don't think I knew I wanted to be a film critic. I think I just became infatuated with film. I was known by all my friends as a film freak. But Portland, Oregon, and growing up was huge for me. So why do you think, what was the connection? Was it just, was it something that was so unusual? Was it just an escape? Was I think it just... I got to get out of the house. <laughs> you know, my, my parents always had parties. I'm the only one in my family to ever go to the movies. My sister was an usherette for a while, but she never went to the movies. She worked in the box office. But no, my, I saw one film with my dad, like I said, the Alamo. I never went to the movies with my mother. I don't remember my anybody in my family ever going but it became 
I think it was a comfort zone for me. And I think I was always starting to push the envelope. So that comfort zone for me was Oregon and movies and Portland. What? How did it get started for you and wine? Well, it's it's so interesting because I I didn't have parents that drank wine. Um, there was my my grandma had a restaurant in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and she had wine, but I don't dare um, say what it was because it might have come out of a jug. But, was it a sweet wine? Yeah, <laughs> probably. Um, but I have an amazing aunt that that has been such an influence on me, and and it's probably. Your escape to the movies was was me going to Houston to visit her every summer, and and we would cook, and we would I I wasn't drinking wine because we she wasn't that bad of an influence. She was a great influence. Yeah. And what was your aunt's name? Uh, my aunt Mickey. Aunt and, Mickey. And we and to this day, Mickey's one of my greatest inspirations because she she had always been such a. a lover of of great things, great food, great wine, mm. great experiences, great theater. And and I I kind of got to enter into that world every summer when I would visit her and it was just magical. And it and it helps show that when you see someone who's so passionate about something and I think that that's how you are about film, you you it's in, it's infectious. You mm. it's contagious. You have to you're drawn to it and that's really when I started Dallas Uncorked, that was at the time I was in a very corporate job and and rather stressful, and I kind of wanted an out. And to me, wine was always kind of the the magical out. It was this very fun thing, and and so to be able to teach people about wine and in a very um, casual and unpretentious atmosphere, because that was also a, a bad stigma that sometimes comes with wine that it can be so pretentious and so. Um, difficult to understand, um, to do that in kind of a fun manner um, was really special. And and then after being there for, after having Dallas and Court for a, a very short time, I said, wow, this is a business and, and I need to really know what I'm doing. And that drove me to to get my certification and to do my training. And, and certainly I'm not, I'm, I'm not a master sommelier in any way, shape or form and, and don't really need to be because I don't work in a restaurant. But um, I do I do know about the grapes and love the grapes and, and think that there's something so incredible about these people that do the work because it's not glamorous. It's probably like making a film. It's... Oh, but it sounds glamorous. <laughs> it sounds like there's always great food and wine around all the time. There, Well, there there often is. But... But, in, but in your childhood, was there great food? Always around with 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 whatever with you were doing, yeah, absolutely, and that's again, Aunt Mickey has to to thank for that. Her house always smelled like like garlic and potpourri. It was just I don't know, wow, because <laughs> it was just like I said, that sounds like a restaurant brothel. Well, I, <laughs> <laughs> but no, um, wow. and, and really great, and and always she and and my uncle Don were amazing. They had a really, really special home that that was just a a really cool place to go. Was there an early? Do do you remember your first taste of wine? And were you like six, seven, eight, or? I I did. My actually, my father was a big. um, uh, I my dad always made you try everything. You didn't have to like it, but you had to try it. And I remember trying my first sip of wine with him as well as my first escargot. Wow. Let's say the wine lasted a little bit longer than the escargot. Yeah, the escargot would scare me. Yes. It scared me as a child. It's yeah. Wow. So what's your what's your earliest recollection of of film beyond uh, the blob? Uh, well, it was those it was those early monster movies, you know, there there's a movie I'll talk about a little bit later that changed my life, but 
But early on, I think I think the Blob and the Killer Shrews are the early. You know, there's a movie called The Incredible Two-Headed Transplant with Rosie Greer, and it was an African American man and a white guy with sharing the same body, and it was just. I remember watching that movie and not getting any of it, but it creeped me out and it scared me. And all these movies now are bad when you look back at them. They're all they're all kind of horrible. So, but I, I love that story of Fayetteville, and I love the story of garlic and what would you say? Potpourri, garlic and, and roses, potpourri. Yes. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a little break. When we come back on a perfect parent, we're going to talk about. Two Oscar-winning films that really shaped my life growing up in Oregon, and I'm going to say right now, it's The Greatness of Lawrence of Arabia and To Kill a Mockingbird. And Haley's going to explore that place that she fell in love with, wine, that she started exploring before Napa. We mentioned it was Oregon. It means a lot to her, and we'll be back when a perfect pairing returns. We are back on A Perfect Pairing. I'm film critic Gary Cogill. And I'm wine writer Haley Hamilton Cogill. So, Gary, I know how much you love Lawrence of Arabia. I do. Why? I do. I know. It's a four-hour Oscar-winning 1962 uh, politically ambiguous desert movie. It made me very thirsty. Go with a good Albarino probably at some day. But it it just—it was the first time, Haley, I think I watched a movie— that wasn't a monster movie, and, and rather than stepping on my foot and the lid opens and I treated movies kind of like garbage, like junk food, um, all of a sudden a movie meant something, and I didn't know what it meant. And so I'm, I, this says a lot about why I became a film critic. But I sat through Lawrence of Arabia by myself four nights in a row as a 10-year-old. It was at the Roseway Theater in Portland, Oregon. made me very thirsty. It was the first movie theater in the state of Oregon with rocking chairs, and also, four nights in a row by yourself as a ten-year-old on a on an adult Oscar-winning film uh, sounds like bad par- <laughs> bad parenting to me. I mean, what were my parents thinking? Yeah. But they they didn't care. And I walked in the daylight and came back in the dark. But that movie just transported me. I think I had an art experience at a young age. So 1962 it was great. David Lean, who did Doctor Zhivago and Bridge on the River Kwai, and Great Expectations. He made he made great, wonderful films and totally eccentric. But 62, 1962 was the same year as To Kill a Mockingbird. So I, that's maybe the second great year of movies, um, greatest year in the history of movies. But two, Gregory Peck wins the Oscar for Best Actor. Lawrence of Arabia wins Best Picture. These are monumental films. I would rotate between one and the other and just all of a sudden movies meant something to me. And I think I became a film critic because I realized that movies weren't junk food. They were substantive and they had something to say, even though as a young child, I wasn't sure quite then what it was. I just knew that it was great. And I was right. I was right about those movies. They were just great, fantastic movies. So I'm watching great movies in Oregon. But let's go with this for a second, okay. though, because yeah. I'm just curious because you 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 say the the monster movies were maybe a little bit more fun, and now there was something mm-hmm. that has a little bit more character. So at 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 that young age, how did that change you? Did it did it change your perspective on anything? Did it did it just make you appreciate art a little bit more? It or? made me want to read books more because a lot of movies came from books. Lawrence of Arabia came from big novels that I found later in life, but. To Kill a Mockingbird is the great Harper Lee's, you know, first novel. You know, I, I, I can't quite explain it other than when I became a teenager later, I became known as the guy in school that went to a lot of films. And 
all my other friends in school just went to be entertained. And all I wanted to engage and to think. Movies became deeper, richer, more important to me because of Lawrence of Arabia and To Kill a Mockingbird. I just didn't know it at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I saw West Side Story and I saw a musical and it changed everything for me too. Men on the streets of New York with lip gloss dancing on the streets <laughs> made me very uncomfortable. But it's a great film. It's Leonard Bernstein and based on Romeo and Juliet. It's the lyrics of Stephen Sondheim. And I, it's the it's yeah. the beauty of a of storytelling. And I think that great that's, storytelling. that that's something that that and and art and I think that both of those things, as as both of us have gotten older, yeah. it makes it's such a big part of us. And I think that I found the same thing in wine. Did you find why Oregon in the early days for you? Well, I just uh, we have a very dear friend that lives in in Portland, and so I would visit her even before you and I knew each other, and that was kind of my my first wine country to go visit, and and it was. Oregon has is definitely a much younger kind of wine community than than some of its neighbors to the south, like Napa, that we both love dearly. But I think that there's just something so comfortable and casual and welcoming about Oregon, um, about Willamette Valley in particular, that that even as they've grown and and have have you know multiplied so much and and we're seeing so many more great wines coming out of the region. The it still has that kind of welcoming country charm that if one succeeds, we all succeed kind of attitude. And I just love good Pinot Noir. So when you when you have such such great wine coming from from really good people, it kind of is it's hard not to fall in love with it. Well, it's a beautiful area, too. But isn't every wine area a beautiful area? There, Yes. <laughs> Usually every place that grows wine, for the most part. I'm generalizing here. But but also, I mean, did you know what a Burgundy was before you had it? I mean, you kind of were starting to know. Yeah, I think that I I definitely had just basic wine knowledge, both from, from like I said, growing up yeah. and then had, had worked in, in restaurants and bars when I was in college and, and certainly had... Had some good basic. Wait, that just went right by us. You worked at a bar in college. I did. I was a. I, I was a. Paid my way through TCU working in bars, which I don't know made if that made my mother very proud. But you paid for college, basically. It, it actually supported, um, paid for a very expensive private school. So never. So moms and dads, let your kids go be bartenders because it's not a bad gig. Okay, it begs one more quick question. Uh, a lot of people are afraid of wine. They're kind of afraid. They're afraid to open a bottle of wine. They're nervous about it, but you never have been that way? I don't think that I was ever nervous about it. The only reason I'm nervous about it now is because I don't want to open a wine too early or too, and then hold it too long that it's turned to vinegar. But no, and, and I think that that's kind of the sad thing about the wine industry in general, that there are so many, they, they there's so many things options and opportunities to make it so difficult. And it's not difficult. I think that just the old world wine system in general, which um, is everything that's not everything in Europe is basically old world designated. Um, they don't put what the what the varieties are on on their labels. Now, in, in modern times, they do. But it used to just be a bottle of Bordeaux, or it used to be a mm -hmm. bottle of, of Bourgogne, or, or a bottle of 
of Rioja. And, and if you if you don't know anything about wine, then you just see that. I still today tell people um, when I'm maybe opening a bottle of Tempranillo and they look at me like I have three eyes and I say, oh, that's the grape of Rioja. They understand that. Or the mm. that Sangiovese is a grape of Chianti. It's they kind of that whole how wine was made then or still is made yeah. um, just almost made it a little bit more difficult. And so you then add that to just all of the kind of pretensions that, that come for some people with, with the wine industry. And it, it can be a little daunting. Do you think it's kind of fascinating that we end up married and I grew up in Oregon and, and I love Oregon and you love Oregon wines. I find that absolutely fascinating. I think it's just one of the reasons that we're such a perfect pair. <laughs> well, that's how that works. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back to a perfect pairing, um, Haley and I are going to explore our relationship together in the world of wine and the world of film. And I'm going to ask you a couple of questions off the cuff. I have no idea what your answers are, and then you can ask me a couple movie questions, and we'll see where it goes. When a perfect pairing continues. And we are back on A Perfect Pairing. I'm film critic Gary Cogill, along with my stunning, very tall, wine expert wife, Haley Hamilton Cogill. So let's have fun, Haley. I'm going to ask you a couple questions, and you can ask me. I have no idea what you're going to ask me. But my first question is, is it always red wine with meat and white wine with fish? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not? That's your first question? Yes. I'm going to say no. And, and But I preface that with, the at the end of the day... Drink what you like, and and the only thing that really matters is if you have a wine that you love, then drink that wine. If you're if you're if it's a big fat in your face cab, and you're eating a very light white fish, no, that pairing may not be the the perfect match. But the only thing that matters is what you like. I will say it's more fun to to explore a little bit more. I know when when I did my training, I was not a big white wine drinker at all. I I had always gravitated to more red wine, and and the nuances that you find when you try so many different white wines, the, there's so many different characteristics that that you can find, and so um, and and. Theoretically, yes, a lighter wine is going to go better with a lighter dish, which is often a fish dish. And a heartier wine is going to go better with a heartier dish, which might be a, be a meat dish. Right, right. And a lot of it also has to do with the sauce. So, you know. Ah, it has to do with the sauce. It's all about the sauce. So, in generalities, it might be most of the time red wine with meat, white time with fish. But that's a generality. It's you, it's you, something that's very yeah. easy for people to throw out there to try to again make people drink what they maybe have on their agenda for them to drink. But right. at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is what you like. Ah, what you like? Okay, I like that. Well, idea. and so is it always if if a big blockbuster film comes out that everybody says you have to go and see? Does everybody have to run and see it? No, and the, the term blockbuster is really odd to me because the term blockbuster is now used by the media to project movies that are coming out. Blockbusters are movies that technically make $100 million. So they don't really become blockbusters until after they're in the, the workplace for a little bit of a while. But no, big movie, big giant movies make a ton of money all the time and they're not very good. Batman versus Superman has made $900 million oh worldwide. God. And I remember <laughs> my favorite is you turned to me 
two hours into this two and a half hour mess and said, boy, this is really stupid. It was so stupid. And I, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I couldn't write anything more profound than that. It really was. But yet, uh, so a lot of movies come out with a lot of hype. And remember, trailers are meant to sell tickets, not necessarily tell you the truth. And they show too much in trailers now. But yeah, I, I think for the most part, the proof is in the viewing. The proof is always in the viewing, not in the promotion of it. Yeah. So when's the last time that you stood in a really long line for a movie? So, oh, wow. Uh, the last time, well, I go back to high school for Love Story and The Godfather. We rated three hours around, standing around a building. I mean, you had to wait and get a ticket to the next showing three hours later and then go grab a bite and then come back and get in that line so you didn't have to sit in the front row. But the one I remember is years ago at North Park in uh, Dallas, Texas. I waited in line with the great Philip Wunsch, who was kind of my idol as a local film critic in Texas. He's a great writer. He passed away uh, a year ago. But Philip and I stood in line for a screening of a movie nobody had ever heard of. We walked in and sat down, and there in the back row was Steven Spielberg and Ridley Scott with baseball hats. And it was the very first test market screening of Blade Runner. And I, I stood in line... But I got to stand in line with a great film critic and talk movies with him before I ever had my career. That's the last one that I remember. Wow. Yeah. It's almost the experience of, of waiting for the film was as good as a film. Yes, it, it actually was. Well, Blade Runners became Incredible. a great film for me. So best if there's a memorable glass of wine in your life, I know people ask you this all the time, but I've never asked it to you. What's what's a memorable memorable glass of wine for you that... Always sticks in your mind. Well, I think the the wow. There are there's so many. There we don't have enough time to talk through them all. But there is when I was first really learning about all the different varieties and the different um, kinds of wines out there. I had a Barolo, which is the Nebbiolo grape, and and it was a a very traditional old world style. It's from the Piemonte region of of Italy, so northwest Italy, the king of Italian grapes. And um, it's it's a big wine. It's very traditionally can be rather tannic. It can it needs years to to soften. This one had um, was nicely aged and and it just it was so luscious and rich and interesting and and untraditional and and I completely understand why it, it earned its reputation as being called the king of Italian grapes. A Barolo. A Barolo. Wow, that's yeah. just so out of context for me. Because I would assume it would be a big Napa cab or it would be something like that. Well, there are those two, but I just <laughs> I think that that's the that's that was kind of my aha moment and and really helped open my eyes because I had had lots of Napa cabs and I'd had lots of Oregon Pinots and I'd had you know, kind of traditional Chiantis and Riojas and, and the kind of go-to wines that, that are well-known and well-marketed. And this little baby was just, oh, it's a beautiful wine. I get really excited knowing that a movie's about to come out. Do you get excited knowing that a vintage of wine is about to hit? Absolutely. Really? Well, and I think that when you, because there's so there's so many people that, that tr- follow this and and write about this and and talk about this and study how how this vintage compares to that vintage and and so when you know that there's a really good year and and I'll just take Napa in particular Napa's 2012s really until last year um, were really really good which was really exciting because it's coming off of of several 
really kind of poor vintages. 10 and 11 were, were not very good, though I actually like a lot of the wines from there because I think they're a little bit more subtle and more finessed in, in some cases. But there's just, they were they were big crops, and then the quality of, of the fruit was really, really there. And so to to know that that's what's coming and then to actually, because of just timing, those are the wines that, that are being released right now, especially those 12s and 13s. That's really, really fun. Mm. What's the best movie you've ever seen on a date way oh, back in the day? I, gosh. Does anything I, jump out? I, I, I'll let you answer that ah. one. What's the, what's the best one for oh, you? Oh, The Godfather in high school. You went on a date to see The Godfather? Oh, I didn't go with a bunch of guys. We, <laughs> you know, my, high, my high school girlfriend, Joyce, wow. dragged me to Camelot and I dragged her to Godfather. And man, those are seeing great movies. Well, Joyce had good taste if she took you to Camelot. Joyce had very good taste in movies, yeah. It's just kind of one of those films. I think exploring this idea together is really interesting. So really wonderful conversation today. I learned a lot. And that's it for today on Wine and Film, A Perfect Pairing. I'm Gary Cogill. As usual, I'm always looking for that next great film. And I'm Haley Hamilton Cogill. In search of that great glass of wine, join us next time on A, a Perfect, Perfect Pairing. Pairing.